This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It's summer, a time when many high school graduates are preparing to make the big leap to college or university. For the overwhelming majority of black students, that means going to a predominantly white institution, or PWI. But there are signs that more young African-American scholars are choosing to continue their studies at historically black colleges and universities. Why more elite black students are choosing HBCUs, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. For more than a century, Historically, black colleges and universities were essentially the only option for most African-Americans who wanted to pursue a higher education. Through the civil rights era, black students faced violence for trying to integrate campuses in the South. And even institutions across the country that weren't openly segregated were frequently hostile or just plain old unwelcoming. Over the course of decades, a lot changed, and eventually more than 90 percent of black college students were in the majority white institutions by the late 90s, with many of the top students barely giving HBCUs a second look. But there are indications that that could be changing. A recent article in the New York Times followed the stories of several highly accomplished black students, many with hefty scholarship offers from prestigious white schools who decided that HBCUs were their best option. For more about why, we're joined by Michelle Purdy. She's the author of Transforming the Elite, Black Students and the Desegregation of Private School. She's also an associate professor of education at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Michelle Purdy, welcome to A Word. Thank you, Jason, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you as well. So I'm going to start this off. Full disclosure, I teach at Morgan State University and HBCU in Baltimore. Professor Purdy. Yep. Just break it down. Like, what are some of the main reasons that more black students are increasingly not just looking at, but choosing HBCUs? I think the reasons are numerous. I think some of the main reasons, however, is that we have a generation of young people who are grappling with racism in ways that their parents probably thought they may never have to do so. And the young people themselves are trying to figure out where do I belong? How do I live authentically? How do I live my truth? And how can I be in an environment that not only supports me academically and prepares me for the world of work, but where I can also develop socially and emotionally, physically, mentally, all those things, right? And so I think HBCUs are on the rise because students in some ways are getting, I hate to say, maybe a little tired of traversing multiple worlds in which they find themselves growing up, maybe going into predominantly white schools from K through 12. And they're saying, I don't want this for higher education. I want a different experience. And so I think those are some of the reasons, in addition to the fact that their parents are grappling more with what does it mean for my child's mental health and well-being to be in spaces 
predominantly white spaces that were not built with them in mind. They may have been built by black people, but they were not built with them in mind. And as these institutions, as as hard as they're trying, right, to be inclusive, to be diverse, to be more equitable, um, and we work very hard at PWIs to do so. Um, but the the question is whether or not that is the space I want my child to spend four years in. And the child, the children themselves are saying, I don't know if that's the space where I want to spend these four critical years in. So we've got, you know, again, for most of the history of, of formerly enslaved people in this country, HBCUs mm-hmm. were the only place to go. Yep. Then you had sort of integration happening in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, I, I know that at least anecdotally, and there's some people who can prove this statistically, then you had this sort of explosion in interest in HBCUs around the time that like a different world was on the air. So that's your late eighties, early nineties. Um, I know that when I was going to college in the nineties, you know, I, I, I applied to HBCUs, but it didn't necessarily seem to be as viable or as necessarily as interesting an option. And then we see this uptick again, that happens probably starting around 2015, 2014 or so. What explains these sort of ebbs and flows in interest mm-hmm. in historically black colleges and institutions? Is it just a change in attitude of the consumer, of black parents, of black students? Is it improvements in these institutions? What was leading to these ebbs and flows? I think it's a mixture, right? First of all, I think we can't obviously ignore the, the larger political, social, historical context. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we were living in Jim Crow. <laughs> we were living under state sanctioned racism. Mm-hmm. So there were very few options for the majority of African-Americans who lived in the South um, post-Reconstruction through Jim Crow to attend any other place for higher education, if they were even able to go on to higher education due to demands of work life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, yes, I mean, part of the larger racial project, as you know so well, um, in the mid 20th century was, was to say we, we can be in all spaces and we should be in all spaces and that we are not, um, deficit by nature. We are, um, we have not been granted access. Literally, as you know, in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the South outlawed literacy for enslaved people, for black people. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, part of the larger racial project for the civil rights movement was that we deserve equal rights. We deserve equal opportunity, equal access. And that exploded into higher education, especially in the sixties, along with the affirmative action, with, with a, along with affirmative action, the Higher Education Act, and then the protests that erupted um, after MLK was assassinated. Um, Because black students were on these campuses, they were calling for changes. They were saying, we need black studies. We need more black students. We need more black faculty. Um, And there was a galvanization in some ways, kind of like almost a moral obligation, whether you're talking about elite K through 12 private schools, or we're talking about higher education more broadly in terms of private, public, that there was almost this moral sensibility that, well, we got to, we got to do something about this. This is not right. Um, so there have been strategies and pushes and programs by PWIs to recruit black students, to recruit talented black students. Right. And we do see that ebb and flow with how affirmative action is attacked um, at the federal level. And so I think. I think now, though, we're dealing with a generation of students. I look at my students now and I'm like, wow, you all grew up with the first black president. 
even for our generation, Jason, I would say when we were growing up, we didn't necessarily think that would be a reality. Yes, people were running as we were growing up, you know, Jesse Jackson, et cetera. But I don't know, really know if we really thought that was going to be a reality. Right. I don't think my parents thought it would be a reality. I certainly don't think my grandmother who lived to 100 and taught in Jim Crow schools here in Mississippi thought it would be a reality until it happened. And here we are thinking, wow, we have made some progress. But then 2014, we're coming up on the anniversary in about six weeks. Michael Brown is gunned down in Ferguson, Mm -hmm. Missouri. Protests erupted Mizzou. Protests erupted Yale. And it's back on the and the students who are on these PWIs are like, well, you all are not hearing us as to why we are so upset about what is happening. You're not understanding why black lives matter. And so I think there's this ebb and flow because black students are continuously feeling like they have to protest at PWIs to be heard, to be felt, to be seen. We did that in the late 90s. And so and I think with social media now, young people are seeing this. And they're saying, I don't know if that's the place I want to be in for four years. I'm curious. You know, there's there's the the sort of anecdote, the old Southern anecdote that you have certain black people who think uh, the white man's ice water is colder. Right. From a from a sort of internal philosophical standpoint, you had many sort of ambitious baby boomer African-American parents who were convinced that the only way you could prove yourself in America was to be at a predominantly white institution, right? That somehow your education would be better because you were going up against white folks. You would know how to deal with them. That was a message. My parents actually never gave me that message explicitly, but it was a message I picked up that like, well, if you go to a black school, it's not going to be as rigorous. Or if you go to a black school, blah, blah, blah. Those are messages that I was getting as a kid. What do you think has changed that has led to increases in applications at HBCUs that are sometimes upwards of 15 to 20 percent over where they were a decade ago. Well, I think we have to remember what that baby boomer generation for many of them, because HBCUs were underfunded, because they Mm -hmm. were deemed, especially public ones, inequitable. The states treated them inequitably. Many of that baby boomer generation that went on to get graduate professional degrees, they had to go somewhere else to get them. They could not get them at HBCUs. So they were having graduate and professional experiences at PWIs. And as much as they heralded the education they got, sometimes in Jim Crow schools, they also saw that there were additional resources at PWIs, best, better facilities, mm-hmm. right? For one, more, better textbooks, better technology. And to a certain extent, there was an embracing of them. I mean, I don't think black folks would have continuously gone, especially black educators, for example, to Teachers College or University of Wisconsin or Indiana University if they hadn't been somewhat embraced at those institutions in the 60s and the 70s. Right. UCLA. Um, And so I think there was this sense that if you're going to compete in this changing world, Perhaps you do have to compete with the master's tools, right, for lack of better words. And so um, and they also saw on the ground when it comes to how school desegregation, we can't divorce higher education from what happened with K through 12 school desegregation or didn't happen, which which was the literally dismantling of a black educational world in which black educators were fired or demoted. Um, And so 
parents in the 60s and the 70s, and I dare say even into the 80s and the 90s, depending on their age, are grappling with how do we prepare our kids for what feels like a changing U.S. society in which we no longer have control over our educational systems, even at the K through 12 level. Fast forward to the last 20 years or even the last six to seven years, we see an uptick because we are still trying to wrestle with the fact that, well, perhaps the struggle to fit in and to assimilate into these institutions, maybe it's just not worth it. <laughs> right? right. We still getting pulled over by the cops. It doesn't matter if you have a degree from Harvard or from Howard. The cop is not going to know the difference. Uh, we're still fearful when we drive down the highways, when we walk in our neighborhoods, when we sit in our churches, and the list goes on. And so I think, and there's also a growing list of, um, I think, having more Black academics who work at HBCUs, very visible on social media, very visible on the right. 24-7 news cycle, is only elevating their status, right? Um, and for whatever you might, people might think of her, I, I don't think it hurts that the first woman of color, black pres vice president of the United States is a graduate right. of Howard University, right? And so right. I think all of that combined, in addition to just what our young people are living through, their first 10 to 20 years of life is was very different than our first 10 to 20 years of life. Not to say we didn't see racism, but we right. didn't see it on social media. You could see right. the L.A. Right. riots on TV, but you're not seeing that and the 24-7 news cycle wasn't even what it was as it is now. Mm -hmm. And let alone, we didn't have social media. We didn't get our first email accounts. I don't know about you, Jason. I didn't get mine in 1997. <laughs> right? Yeah, I didn't get mine until I went to college. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so the way in which our young people are interacting with the world and the world around them is very different. And I think that I think all of those things are contributing to why we're seeing an uptick in the number of applications to HBCUs. We're going to take a short break. We come back more on the rising popularity of HBCUs. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the appeal of historically black colleges and universities with education professor Michelle Purdy. So what are some of the demographic differences between HBCU students in the last five years than perhaps in the mid-90s? Are these kids are they coming in with more money, higher education, uh, you know, more dual parent families? What's the difference between you know, the class of, of 2024 Right. And the class of 1994 or 2004. Well, I, I don't know the specific percentages. I think anecdotally, mm -hmm. we can say, though, um, that we are seeing more students. We know for we know historically that um, African-Americans have disproportionately um, attended K through 12 schools that are um, underfunded, under-resourced, um, especially since the 50s and the 60s um, as, um, and 
and not just underfunded and under-resourced, but also in more kind of hostile environments in many ways, right? So we know the school-to-prison pipeline or the school-to-prison nexus has increased over the last 40 to 50 years. We know that discipline rates uh, in terms of expulsion and suspension are happening in, in greater numbers, not just for Black boys, but we also see it for Black girls, right? So we know all of this at the K through 12 level, and we know that historically HBCUs have, have served a larger percentage of Black children who come from lower income families who are more likely to take out loans for college, who qualify for Pell eligible, um, who are Pell eligible. And so what I think what we're seeing now for HBCUs, we are seeing even more middle class and upper class Black students um, choosing HBCUs, even if they are earning, for example, merit-based scholarships at predominantly white institutions, or if they qualify um, because of the immense financial aid that predominantly white institutions are now affording to students, um, especially students of, of um, what are middle class or lower income backgrounds. And just kind of how all those numbers, you know, work out. And so I think we're seeing them choose HBCUs at higher rates again because of not only have HBCUs shown themselves to be academically competitive with being able to place their graduates in top industries after college, you know, with job placements, graduate school placements, professional education placements, right? They're showing themselves to be advantageous because of the network. And I'm sure some of that networking has been experienced by their parents as their parents have gone out into the work world. But they're also showing that they are places where you can develop socially and emotionally, as I mentioned um, once before. We're also seeing an uptick, keep in mind, of predominantly white institutions now seeking more students of color, in particular Black students who are Pell eligible. And so I don't know if there's less attention in some respects of their recruitment efforts towards Black students of quote-unquote means, because there is so much attention now by PWIs. And I'm not saying it's wrong, because there needs to be SES diver- socioeconomic status diversity at, at PWIs. But there is a there is such an emphasis now by PWIs to say they feel like in some ways that they have che- achieved, quote-unquote, I think, racial diversity, because they're able to get their percentages up to 10 and 12 percent uh, of Black students for example, as compared to maybe six or eight in the 90s. Um, And now there's been such a tremendous focus on socioeconomic status diversity, which, as we know, also intersects with racial diversity. So that PWIs, I think, are less focused sometimes on recruiting, perhaps, um, Black students, particularly Black students of means. So McKinsey and Company, you know, the international yep. consulting group, they they published research last year about HBCUs, and they found that these schools delivered nearly double the economic mobility, and that's, you know, moving people from the bottom of the, yep. you know, from the bottom to the top, um, than top majority white institutions. So you're talking a little bit about that. It provides networking, sort of a social space, but like at a functional level, like what are HBCUs doing? If I'm if I'm a poor black student, right? I'm a, I'm on tons of grants, right? Nobody in my family has gone to college. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Why is it that when I graduate from 
Morehouse or Spellman or Hampton or Johnson C. Smith, right, or FAMU, why is my economic mobility seem to increase more graduating from one of those places than if I went to Florida State or Chapel Hill or something else like that? Why is it that HBCU seem to be it seemed to have a greater impact on black social mobility. I think they have very, I think they for a long time have focused on career counseling and career placement and making the connections and having and establishing the relationships with, with industries um, so that when it comes time to recruit their graduates, they have created those connections. They have created those networks. I don't know if, and this is just totally anecdotally, this is not based on, you know, research. Um, I don't know if PWIs or predominantly white institutions are giving that same attention to the, to the outcomes. I think there's attention to the recruitment I think there's attention to the retention, but I don't know if there's the same fierce attention to where your black students are going post-graduation. And I I also think, I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. I also think that one of the things that comes into play is that when you are an African-American student at a predominantly white institution, right, you're dealing with all the same sort of institutional racism that affects all black people in the workforce. You may go to the career counseling office and they may not want to talk to you or they may not give you the same attention or they don't look at you and they think of themselves. But when AT&T or Enterprise Rent-A-Car or NBC News when they come to Bowie State's campus, they are looking for black people. <laughs> and they're looking for black people who are, um, you know, who have who have who have excelled. Right. And HBCUs right, right. have long um, been able to, in many ways, counter the inequitable K through 12 educational system by preparing those students who may not be in the most resourced of K through 12 environments, but somehow working with them, whether it's through extra classes, summer programs, uh, sen- developing that sense of community to say, hey, you can be, you can go anywhere you want to go in the world and we're going to help you get there. I've noticed that historically black colleges and read about how historically black colleges and universities are also marketing themselves better. Why do you think that light bulb has finally has finally just gone on in the last six or seven years because that marketing stuff is huge. Every kid, every college, every incoming college student wants to have a cool team to go to. They want to have a cool basketball game. They like hearing that they, that there's a professor in the engineering department or the English department or the uh, political science department who's on TV that their parents have heard of. HBCUs weren't doing that in 1995, but they seem to have figured out the last six or seven years. Why do you think that's the marketing has improved? Well, I think there's I think there's a deep understanding in black America about I think there's always been a deep understanding about marketing and promotion. (laughs) Right. Um, Mm -hmm, right. And I think now um, I, I really do think social I think there must be folks working to understand the role of social media in black America. Um, and I think, I think we can't undersell the role of social media now with the promotion of HBCUs. Um, and that's not formal. That's not always formal marketing and promotion. That is, um, you know, that's Deion Sanders, um, on Insta Mm -hmm. all the time. That is Nicole Hannah Jones talking about her, you know, on, on Twitter and, and being at Howard. And we can't underestimate the power of social media in reaching our young people. 
whether it's for marketing purposes, whether it's for them, how they're grappling with the world. I mean, I feel like sometimes my students come to college knowing more about intersectionality than, I mean, probably than what I knew even as an undergrad, you know, it was like kind of graduate school before I was really grappling with, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's, you know, obviously the term we all use now, intersectionality, right? But Social media has allowed them ways to interact with ideas and theories and now um, institutions of higher learning um, in ways that are unprecedented. Um, and you can you, you and you have the time in some ways, the pandemic also, I think. Um, and I think this is kind of across. The, I don't cross the board. I know at least at WashU in St. Louis, where I'm on faculty, there was an uptick in applications. I think in part, students had more time to explore on social media, right? Like, what is this student group saying? Or what is the student newspaper saying? Or what is what's really happening? Let me get into the the nitty gritty of what students are saying about their experiences at these institutions. And then let me apply. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more about why more black students are choosing HBCUs. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about enrollment in historically black colleges and universities with Professor Michelle Purdy. We've been talking about the sort of renaissance of HBCUs over the last six or seven years. We have a vice president who went to Howard. Um, you know, issues of the the racial reckoning, Black Lives Matter movement, African-American students have been wanting to be in environments that they found more welcoming. The connection between being in a welcoming environment and academic success, all these things are great and wonderful. And as I've pointed out, there have been, uh, you know, some HBCUs the last several years have talked about upwards of 20% increases. We've seen over these last several years that we've discussed that you know, improvements in marketing from HBCUs, that the recognition that being in a comforting environment as an African-American student leads to financial and academic success. Um, These schools doing a better job of raising money, these schools doing a better job of retaining money. So there are many ways that HBCUs has improved. And as I've said, you have some schools, even small institutions that have talked about upwards of 15 to 20% increases in applications. I mean, you've got HBCU campuses, North Carolina Central and A&T who've had to expand because they have so many students applying. These are all the success stories, but there are still HBCUs, certainly in the Midwest, that are still struggling financially, that are still seeing their budgets get slashed by the state, even if they got a little bit of CARES Act money, that are still seeing uh, students whose parents were impacted by the pandemic, so they can't afford to go back. What seems to be the difference between the HBCUs that are striving in this last six or seven years and some of the ones, we don't have to say names, but some of the ones that are continuing to struggle with the long-term endemic challenges that HBCUs have always had. Yeah. Well, I think I think those that are that are seeing the the high increase in numbers um, in applications most likely were doing a lot of things before 2014 to increase their stature. Um, and then there's some HBCUs that are just obviously more well known nationally um, than others. And so, and I think all of that has, I mean led to this kind of rapid increase in the percentage of applications going up. And unfortunately, for those HBCUs that continue to struggle, 
most likely they were struggling before the pandemic. Um, and they are probably, you know, from what I, you know, from what I understand, they're probably in less urban areas. I think it's harder sometimes for HBCUs in the more rural areas to, um, to, to sustain themselves. I think it's a harder attraction sometimes to get young people to move to the more rural areas for four years of college. There is something to be said about going to college in Washington, D.C., <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, yes. Or, or even in a smaller, but... Or Atlanta. Or Atlanta. <laughs> or, yeah. Or, yeah. you know, Tal- I mean, even like a smaller southern city, like, a, you know, a Tallahassee or even a Jackson, Mississippi, or, or, of course, New Orleans, right? There's something to be said about going to college um, in a larger city or at least a city that may have a few things of its own and the HBCU adds to that excitement, but then you're only two or three hours away from other large cities. And so I think some of those schools that are struggling are struggling in part because they um, struggle to, to um, fundraise prior to um, these this uptick. And I think they're struggling in part, like other institutions, whether you're talking about HBCUs or not, I think sometimes it's harder now for rural institutions to do as well. Um, just based on, again, you know, reading news, talking to colleagues, right? Um, even for some of your predominantly white institutions or, um, you know, liberal arts colleges that find themselves in more kind of rural areas. So, so. I always want to ask this at the end because I, I, I think it's important to get this sort of internal perspective, right? So you and I both went to predominantly white institutions, right? That's where we got our undergraduate degrees and everything else like that. After your research and study about the history of black education, and, and I, I will volunteer this about myself because I have now taught at two HBCUs. If you had a chance to do it over again, <laughs> Professor Purdy, and I hope this doesn't shade any place that you've gone. I'm sure you are a proud alumni. But if you had it to do over again, would you go to an HBCU as an undergrad? If you could, if you could redo it. And, don't, and you can't give me one of those philosophical, but I love my life now. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm just saying, in the grand scheme of things, if you had it to do over again, would you have chosen an HBCU? I will, I will based on the options I had, in the in the spring of '97, um, and my you know my life. I mean, I went to a predominantly white institution growing up, right? I've studied the first black students to go to historically white elite private schools. The racism some of them experienced is some of the same racism that kids at predominantly white private schools are experiencing today. Um, I didn't necessarily experience. I'm not going to say there were no issues at the school I attended growing up for me. I'm not saying that, but I had a really, I had a special K through 12 educational experience. Um, Did I wrestle with identity? You better believe it. I'm a black girl growing up in Jackson, Mississippi. (laughs) Right. Um, I will say if I had not perhaps been an urban scholar, and I'm saying this because we're about to celebrate 35 years of this amazing scholarship program. If I had not been embraced by a then all black scholarship program, if it had not been for that, that that's the community. That's why I chose WashU in St. Louis. 
Yes, it's an amazing research, one institution, tons of resources, but I was starting college in a Black community where there were other Black folks who um, who felt connected and who were receiving a merit-based scholarship because of our achievements academically, in leadership, and in service. Um, so if that had not been on the table, Jason, or a similar program, but with kind of less familial feel at another institution, I may have very well chosen uh, Jackson State or Spelman. Michelle Purdy is the author of Transforming the Elite, Black Students and the Desegregation of Private Schools. Thank you so much for joining me today on A Word. Thank you, Jason, for having me. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Eric Aaron. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.